Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. In this episode, we hear the music from another sequel, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, made in 2008. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Welcome back, everyone. Though John Williams took a break of about two years between writing film scores, a long gap that had his fans going crazy, I'm happy that we're able to go right from 2005's Munich into 2008's Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull here on the Baton. I'm just going to say this right away. I did not like this movie when I watched it in May 2008, and I did not like it that much after watching it to prepare for this episode. But there are a few musical gems to enjoy, and I'll share those with you today. Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull was the fourth time our fedora-wearing adventurer graced the big screen. And joining me now to talk about this film is Brian Martell, who is gracing us with his presence on the baton for the fourth time. Welcome back, Brian. Uh, thank you very much, Jeff. It's great to be here on the baton with you again, uh, this time chatting about another Steven Spielberg-John Williams collaboration, and this one's a tad special for me because I fall into the category of people who uh, associate John Williams with uh, Star Wars and the Indiana Jones uh, films, the original three of each. So it's, it's really a thrill personally to be finally able to discuss one of those scores with you today. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark is uh, one of my favorite movies ever. It's also the film that put Steven Spielberg on my personal radar. Uh, also a great classic score by John Williams. I loved, absolutely loved, the uh, follow-up, The Temple of Doom in 84. Uh, I was a tad disappointed, to be honest, with the uh, third in the series, The Last Crusade in 89. Uh, always a bit of a letdown for me, though. Sean Connery's just fantastic performance always saves that film for me. Now, Spielberg himself said that The Last Crusade in 1989 was going to be the last film featuring Indiana Jones, or at least the last film that would have him serving as director. But there was no more fitting proof of that than Indy and the rest of the heroes riding off into the sunset at the end. Yeah, I definitely remember the promotions back then, and that was definitely part of the sale. This is the, the last one. So why do you think Spielberg and company came back for a, a fourth outing? Well, he and George Lucas made a deal way back in 1980 with Paramount Pictures to make five Indiana Jones movies. And even though Paramount was just the distributor, they were making a lot of money off the first three films. And I bet there was no way they were going to let this deal fall apart. So the idea for the fourth film came as early as 1994, but the plans were scrapped because Independence Day, which was this big blockbuster about telepathic aliens that attack Earth, was released the year before this Indiana Jones movie about telepathic aliens was set for filming. So if you fast forward to 2005, and at this point, George Lucas was done with Star Wars, and he was ready to turn back to his other big moneymaker for Lucasfilm. But as for Spielberg, he had been on a break as a director since finishing Munich in fall 2005. And he and Lucas started working with potential screenwriters on possible scripts in 2002 with a script finally ready in early 2007. Uh, well, I, I would argue that script was ready. I, I think the script for this film definitely needed a, 
a rewrite and polish before they began shooting. I didn't notice things as much when I saw it in 2008, but this time around there were a couple of things that irked me, and I, likely they all would have been repaired by a, a good polish, especially uh, the first half of the film. What helps with Raiders and Temple of Doom's success, I think, is those screenplays are really well-structured. They're really, really tight. Um, that's not the case with The Last Crusade or Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and I think that is... Uh, they're sort of looser, if you wanted to be negative, lazy screenplays really are a detriment to, to both films. Another problem with uh, Crystal Skull is, and I'm not slamming Shia LaBeouf, but uh, I think he was miscast as Mutt Williams. Now, if your listeners don't know, Shia was just a few months shy of turning 18 when he finished his work on Indy 4, having been famous for uh, his lead role in the Disney Channel series Evan Stevens. And if you like to slam Shia LaBeouf, you might be uh, surprised to know that he won an Emmy for his work on that series in 2003. He had his first breakout film role with the film Holes, but he really landed big time with the success of the Transformers in 2007, and, and he was really great in that one. And let's point out that Spielberg was executive producer on that film, so it sounds like Shia used his connections to get into Indy 4, which happens all the time. But I bet there was still a big casting call to fill the role of Mutt. But I don't really know who else would have been the better choice. And to be honest, I don't either. The problem I have is that Mutt is designed as a tough character, a rebel. And I actually think the only reason that they wanted him to be tough was... As they got in their careers, Lucas and Spielberg loved to throw in winks and nods. I mean, the indie series is full of them. And so when you first see Mutt, he's directly out of uh, the wild ones. It's, it's Marlon Brando and the wild ones. I, I don't know if younger viewers would recognize that, but when I was growing up, that was such an iconic image. And that's exactly what he is. And I actually think the only reason Mutt's tough is because they really wanted that iconic, you know, Wild Ones look from their, their childhood. And that, that's just not something that, that I think Shia LaBeouf inhabits fully. If you wanted that, you know, going a decade earlier, a young Christian Slater or a young Kiefer Sutherland, those are two actors that could have pulled off a tough Mutt. Shia sits more like in his role in the Transformers. He's more of an, uh, of an innocent uh, guy. He's, he's, not, he's not a toughie. You would think that Spielberg being able to direct young performers so well, if you think of, you know, E.T. and the Temple of Doom, those young performers, yeah, he gets great performances out of them, but he always casts actors who kind of sit in who the role is. And unfortunately, it, that doesn't work for she in this film. I think this decision for that one iconic, you know, wink and nod really didn't set she up for success in that movie. Well, there was a discussion that Mutt would be a book nerd like Indiana Jones, but, and here we have to let people know that a big spoiler is coming here. So, since Mutt is actually Indiana Jones's son, the idea of making Mutt the exact opposite of Indy was what they considered to be a good idea. Kind of the way Indy himself was a different kid than his father liked. If you remember kind of that uh, back and forth that Sean Connery and Harrison Ford had because Sean Connery was upset that Indy didn't turn out to be like him. I also found out researching this, the creative team was originally thinking of ma making Mutt not a son, but a daughter. And that would have been quite an interesting little twist in storytelling. And actually, to be honest, in today's climate, I think if they were making that film today, they would have made Mutt a daughter rather than a son. Yes, I think so. Anyway, the, uh, 
miscasting and lazy script aside, I, I, I still enjoyed uh, The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull this time around. I, I, I think it's very entertaining. It, it, it's a fun, fun ride, as I like to describe indie films, very much to me, my mind, in the Temple of Doom vein. The film also, to me, feels more like a direct sequel to Raiders of the Lost Ark than the other films in the uh, franchise. I actually think it is more of a sequel to Raiders in the classic sequel sense of continuing a story from the first film. And I think this sequel sense really applies to the score. If you watch and then listen to the Raiders score and then go right into the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull score, the, the two just really flow together nicely. They're, they're really the same style, almost, in the sense that you know, each score has a couple of set pieces, but the underscore is mostly made up, and I apologize to listeners with musical experience of my lack of musical skill, but the underscore is really made up of rolling chords and strings and brass with percussion hits to, to add some texture through most of the film. Yeah, John Williams said returning to the Indiana Jones world was, quote, like sitting down and finishing a letter you started 25 years ago, end quote. And it does have a feel like it's trying to get back to that original Indiana Jones sound after we lost it a little bit with Temple of Doom and tried to recreate it a little bit with Last Crusade. But it's still very much nestled in the current tonality that John Williams was using for his action movies in the 2000s. But did you know this? This is actually John Williams' 100th score, and it's really fitting that he's doing it with his good friend Steven Spielberg. Wow, 100. Uh... I feel more honored to be talking about it. I think it's a worthy score for his centenary and uh, a, a worthy film and part of a franchise uh, in of the Indiana Jones cycle. Now, before we talk about the score, I, I've just got to say this again. I, I, I have a hard time with this movie. And it's not because Shia LaBeouf is miscast or because there's no chemistry between him and Harrison Ford, but because of that god-awful refrigerator scene near the beginning. Now, if you've seen the movie, you know what I mean. It's the one where Indy is escaping the Russians in the middle of the desert, and he stumbles onto a fake neighborhood which will be pulverized during an atomic bomb test. Now, in order to survive it, Indy hides in a refrigerator which is blasted into the air many miles away, rolls down a hill, more like stumbles down a hill, and out tumbles our hero without a broken bone or major injury. Now, fans of the series said that this was the saga's jumping the shark moment, from back in the happy days, that's where that term came from. Uh, it got desperate to stay relevant by creating a moment that they hoped would create some positive buzz. I do agree it was a shark-jumping moment in terms of not being very believable, even in the world of Indiana Jones, and I had a very tough time suspending belief for the rest of the movie after that. Well, just a side note, being a very late baby boomer, I remember the Fonzie jumping the shark episode very clearly. <laughs> That was that was a cliffhanger. Boy, we were worried about the Fonz. <laughs> but the the bit in the film, it, it, people always complain about it. it. It never really bothered me. It's Indiana Jones, and if you're stuck right next to a nuclear blast, how else are you going to survive it? You get into a lead-lined fridge. But I actually started to laugh watching the film this time, and I apologize because I hate the trend of rewriting a movie. But I actually saw an opportunity for a, a sort of tongue-in-cheek cheek joke that is part of the indie franchise starting in the first one where the sword guy comes out and indy just shoots him and what made me chuckle was again in the film indy's escaping the russians they're chasing him in a car he goes to that town he thinks it's a real town he realizes everyone's 
uh, mannequins, and then you have the countdown, and you pull back to the bomb on the tower, so we know Indy sees it. The Russians see it, because they tear out of there in the car with uh, Indy a little teed off. He now wants to be captured by them, and he's left to his own devices. As the bomb goes off, he hides in the fridge. Bomb goes off. The town, as you say, is pulverized, and anyone who's seen the footage knows Spielberg's taken that directly from the footage of the actual atomic tests in Nevada from the late 50s, and it launches the fridge. In the film, the blast wave consumes the Russian's escaping car with the fridge flying overhead. It lands, bounces, he bounces out. I thought what would have been really funny is if the car is going fast enough that the Russians actually escape the blast wave. And the blast wave kind of passes them. They survive. They're happy. And from the air, the fridge lands on the car, kills the Russians. They're bad guys. They get what's coming to them. And because no one's pressing the gas, the car rolls to a stop. Indy rolls out of the fridge. Uh, I chuckle thinking about it. I, I think that would have been just a really fun Indy moment. And it might have, pardoned the pun, cushioned the blow back on the uh, nuking the fridge moment. However, if it really bothers you, I haven't read it myself, but I've uh, seen uh, people talking about it. There apparently is a paper on the web by a physicist who analyzed the whole sequence, and the nuking the fridge incident would have a 50-50 possibility of survival. So, Well, it, the good thing about the scene is at least John Williams didn't write music for the blast and the, you know, the hurling through the air and all that. He did give us a lot of music for this movie about 100 minutes worth, but there were some parts that went without music, and thankfully this was one of them. Yes, but on a positive note, whether you like the fridge or not, he gave us a great musical moment when Indy stands up and sees that mushroom cloud rising above him. It, it, it's a great shot, great musical moment. Now, since we're here to discuss the score, we could look at it. Uh, I myself break it into three parts or movements, as I might chat about a bit later. The first part, of course, is the setup. We meet our villains and learn what special artifact everyone's going to be chasing and fighting Indiana Jones for in the film. And uh, for our purposes of score, most importantly, all the new major themes for the score are introduced to us. In the second part, I call it the quest for the skull. Uh, this takes Indian Mutt to the Nazca Plains in Peru, where they find the graveyard, retrieve the skull, captured by the Russians, taken deep into the Amazon forest, where the story thankfully brings in Marion Ravenwood. Uh, I don't know about you, Jeff, but for me, this film just really starts to feel nice when uh, Karen Allen shows up. She's such a great breath of fresh air, and the, the chemistry between her and Harrison Ford is great. I wish she was in the film more. And then the third part, of course, is the finale, taking us into the lost city of gold called Akator, skulls revealed, and, and of course our nice epilogue. So since we're talking music, to quote The Sound of Music, let's start at the very beginning with the first part, where we find ourselves taken to a warehouse by some Russian infiltrators, and Indy and his British friend Mac apparently have been kidnapped because the Russians want Indy to help them find something special inside this warehouse. Here's again an example of a tighter script. I, I thought there had to be deleted scenes. Why is Indy just helping the Russians? 
In a tighter script, they would have threatened to, you know, shoot his friend in the head in front of them, so he helps them. They're hoping to escape. The script did set that up. Would have led to a more of a, a fun little surprise, spoiler alert, when Mac turns out to be a double, or is it triple or quadruple agent? I'm, I'm not really sure. It's kind of hard to follow. Again, tighter script might have made that work. Anyway, there's a great musical introduction to our hero, Indiana Jones, something I think taken and inspired by his appearance in uh, The Last Crusade for the first time. And here it comes when uh, we see that iconic fedora on the ground, the dirty shoes come in, he bends down, stands up, puts the hat on, and turns towards the camera. And we know the man with the hat is back. And I like that moment, but I also like the music we got before that, which I thought was going to turn out to be a very prominent theme for the Russians that serve as replacement villains for the Nazis in this movie, which is set in 1957. It's constructed with what sounds like a series of triplets on horns and the brass as the Russians arrive at the secret warehouse. Of course, there is a theme for the main villain. She's a slinky femme fatale named Arena Spalko. She's played by Kate Blanchett, acting in her first big-budget Hollywood blockbuster. And, of course, you can't count the New Zealand-made Lord of the Rings trilogy. Now, of course, Blanchett had been a big star long before this, playing Queen Elizabeth II in two movies and winning an Oscar for portraying Catherine Hepburn in The Aviator in 2004. Yeah, Kate's a fantastic actress, really fantastic. And she brings so much to her portrayal of Irina Spalko in this film, a role, again, loose script, that isn't really as well written as it could be. But I think her performance is what inspired Williams to really sink his teeth into her theme, making it sound very cat-like and sensuous, yet yet threatening and dangerous. Similar to, I found, how Prokofiev wrote music for the cat in his Peter and the Wolf suite. Now, the theme's first introduction comes, of course, on the first shot of Arena, as she and Indy meet for the first time. But the more Peter and the Wolf slinky rendition comes a tad later in the movie when Indy is rescued from the Russians, he's being decontaminated, and he's finally shown her, her, her dossier. Now, here's the theme's first appearance as she first appears in the film.
And here's the uh, slinkier version I like from a bit later in the film when Indy is debriefed. Yes, I like this theme. It feels like it's straight out of a James Bond movie, a film noir, and a B-movie all at once. Yes. So my favorite rendition of Arena's theme comes in the long jungle, jungle chase scene that we'll discuss later. But I'll just play that awesome moment with Arena's theme here. It happens after Arena's gun runs out of bullets, so she resorts to her primary weapon, a rapier sword. As she pulls it out, looking more determined to kill Indy and his friends, John Williams shows how much she means business by letting the brass section play her theme. It's just four seconds, but it's one of my favorite musical moments in the film. So let's go back to the beginning of the film and the big warehouse sequence. Now, as Arena is talking to Indy about needing him to re- retrieve that precious artifact that he uncovered 10 years ago, of course we think it's the Ark of the Covenant. Now, you will remember that, of course, the Ark was put into a box and stored in a large warehouse, and we don't even know where that warehouse was at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. So our thoughts naturally turn to the Ark, and John Williams lets us continue to think those thoughts as the warehouse doors open, continuing to play the arc theme from his 1981 score. Irina's theme takes over as she mentions the mummified remains, which means she's not looking for the Ark. From the moment Indy and his friend Mac are pulled out of the trunks of the cars to the moment our hero is launched on a rocket train of some sort, the music never stops. It's a full 14 minutes of music, and most of it returns to the well that Williams has used for action music since the beginning of the 21st century. Most of the music playing during Indy's escape is very little use of melodic construction, save for some brief uses of Indy's theme, which is... For me, why the scene doesn't pack a lot of emotion for me. You know, I wish they kept up the diversion that the Russians were looking for the Lost Ark of the Covenant a tad longer. In fact, the tricks Indy uses to try to discover the crate all fit in with the Russians being after the Ark of the Covenant. I also feel it's this opening that really sets up that sequel to Raiders feel from the warehouse reveal as it pulls back. I mean, we know we've been here before, and, and more importantly, we know what's in here. Uh, you know, the Return of the Ark theme 
kind of lands us back in a score we're familiar with. And then you have those rolling chords in the basses with the percussion stings here and there that really make this score fall right into the Raiders ca uh, category and style. Of course, once the artifact is found, and we realize it's not, not the Ark, Indy's Great Escape sequence begins and the score jumps into action. One way I think this score does differ from its cousins is in how it's put together. I think it lacks the big musical set pieces that stand out on a soundtrack album. I'm thinking Map Room Dawn, The Desert Chase, from the Raiders' original release. This film, as I said, mentioned earlier, I think it's scored more in movements, if you will, that breaking them up into small little bits for an album presentation just doesn't do justice to the, to the full score. I think this is a John Williams score that definitely just demands a complete presentation. You're not screwed, listeners, because somebody put the complete score up on YouTube. So if we inspire you to listen to it, and hopefully we do, it's there and you can enjoy it at your leisure. Now back to the score itself. The warehouse sequence, as you said, it's, it's this 14-minute bit. It, it just keeps on building up and adding intensity. It, it starts as, as the strings start playing, a pulsating building ostinato as Indy asks for gunpowder and starts looking for the crate containing whatever the Russians are after. And then the whole sequence climaxes as unison as chords coincide with the countdown to the ignition of the rocket engines on the sled that will blast our hero Indiana Jones to safety. Uh, or so we think, because, you know, that infamous fridge awaits him.
Now, as Indiana Jones and every artifact Indiana Jones has almost died finding and defending has gotten a major musical theme from John Williams. We had the theme for the Ark from Raiders, the Shankara Stones in Temple of Doom, and the Holy Grail in The Last Crusade. So the legendary crystal skulls and the lost city of their origin, Akator, of course, they get one too. Now, in the film, when Indy first is told his friend was after this, Oxley, an old school friend, and he thinks they're just myths and it's silly, but when Mutt shows him an encrypted note from Oxley, played in the film by the late great John Hurt, and he begins to believe there might be something to these stories. This theme for the crystal skulls and the mysterious mythical city of their origin is, is given a very creepy, mysterious, and, spoiler alert, alien uh, sound and feel. I think, you know, the fact that Williams uses a keyboard and synthesizer to play it adds to the mood. And, and as we play it, I'll ask listeners to pay attention to that little three-note motif that, that starts off and plays throughout the theme. Sound a bit familiar, Jeff? I only say that because it never hit me before, but this time I can't help but wonder if there might be a connection to a, another alien theme written by John Williams. I'm thinking of one from 31 years ago, and yes, it's the famous five-note melody from Close Encounters of the Third Kind that ultimately was used to communicate with the aliens. It seems like they might be linked here. There's something familiar about those three notes. Are they taken from those five notes? Are they played in a different key? Are they minor instead of major? You know, I'm not a musical expert, but I tried humming the Crystal Skull theme a few times, and it seemed to transition really easily into the five-note motif. I wonder if maybe the final note from those five notes is played going into the first two of it. Uh, anyway, I was curious, so... I did a little bit of very, very rudimentary editing, and uh, let's give it a play and see what people think. So I don't know, is that pretty close? Is there something there? Is it a little musical wink and a nod by Spielberg and Williams? What do you think? Yeah, I think we have something here. Those three notes are pretty, pretty close, and it's not out of the realm of possibility that Spielberg and Williams had the idea to really blend these two themes together, since they're both talking about aliens. 
So as exciting as it is to think about the link between Close Encounters and the aliens in Crystal Skull, this theme for the skull just isn't as profound as the music Williams wrote for the Ark, the Shankara Stones even, or the Holy Grail. I agree that the music is creepy, but it's not hummable or even very memorable. I think John Williams was going for mood over melody with this music, and the mood is very good. But I have to wonder why the music for the skull doesn't pull me in when we're in the alien temple at the end and all the skulls have been returned. It's at this point that the theme is at its strongest, but it's not as full-throated as the arc theme when it was finally opened and unleashed its power. Yeah, yeah, I agree. This this theme isn't as strong as the previous MacGuffin themes. I think its first appearance that we've talked about where Indy and Mutt discuss the Legend of Akator is where it really works the best. However, in that finale, when the skull theme plays underneath quietly for a bit, builds and then merges with Spalco's theme, it, it creates this grand chord that I found very reminiscent of the chords you will hear in William's score from Dracula from back in 1979. Even if Shia LaBeouf is miscast or misrolled, might be a better way to say it as Mutt, John Williams does give him a great theme that's introduced in the first little chase sequence in the movie as Indy and Mutt try to escape Russian agents trying to capture them, starting a fight in a soda shop, and then ending in a motorcycle chase through the uh, institution Indy is a professor at. It's, it's a lovely little scherzo. It, it fits perfectly into the catalogue of Williams' scherzos. Uh, in the version we're going to play here, it playing around with little bits of Indy's theme thrown in. And I also think he uses bits from that uh, Last Crusade cues, the Indy's first adventure, and the motorcycle scherzo from that film. It is quite enjoyable, but I would point out it's very light in tone. Now, people would say, well, that's because it's underscoring the somewhat comedic aspects of the chase. But to my mind, it also reinforces the misalignment of, of who Mutt is in the film. This is not a theme for a tough guy. It's a theme for a more young, innocent adventurer.
Now, this cue is the only, what I would consider, real standout cue on the original soundtrack album, like The Basket Game from Raiders of the Lost Ark or uh, The Minecar Chase from Temple of Doom. I think it also shows a very nice mix of, of scoring styles. It's You obviously have the classic 80s Williams sound. Uh, you know, you'd associate that with Star Wars, Empire, Raiders. But it's mixed with his more millennial sound, as you mentioned earlier, with the scarecrow punctuated by hits on the xylophone, reminiscent of the chase sequences you talked about in Attack of the Clones. Yes, and I think that's why it didn't give me as much of a thrill. Now, the mixture of these two phases of John Williams's career has never worked well to my ears. His scores work better when there is just a focus on melodic construction to glue the score together, like he did with Harry Potter most recently, or just tonal constructs to just create sounds to accentuate the mood, as he did with the last two Star Wars prequel movies. Blending these two kind of styles together in Crystal Skull was a little disconcerting, going from one composition method to another, often in the same scene. Yeah, that's an interesting point, Jeff. I liked it. It added some fun and texture to the cues for me, but I, I take your point. Uh, you might like the other presentation of Mutt's theme. It gets a concert arrangement on the album uh, called The Adventures of Mutt, and this, of course, is more classically orchestrated. This theme is also used clearly as the B-adventure theme in the film, especially in The Jungle Chase, which we'll talk about later. And it's used whenever Mutt does something heroic, like the uh, we've talked about his fight with Spalko in that same chase. However, to point out, the concert piece is even more lighthearted and fun. This is not a wild one, rebel, angry Marlon Brando. This is more of a Boy Scout comedic mutt. with our uh, first movement of the score, if you will, looked at, let's go on to where the film, for my taste, and the score really start to land, and it lands, pun intended, when uh, Mud and Indy land in Peru, as we get the cliché indie transitional music ending with a fly over the uh, Nazca Plains in Peru. And this is where I think a little opportunity was missed, because being that late boomer, I was a kid in the 70s when the infamous film Chariots of the Gods came out. Didn't see it in the theater, but it played on television all the time. Silly, fun movie, obviously a source for this film, and if you've seen that movie, it's a source for a lot of stuff in Indiana Jones. The Ark of the Covenant is a very scary, powerful relic. That's right out of Chariots of the Gods. The, the whole Akator out of Chariots of the Gods. So since Lucas and Spielberg have obviously used this film as a source, I thought they missed a chance to get a little musical link, wink and a nod, especially when you see the Plains of Nazca, which is key to that, that movie. It would have been nice if they... They did a little musical homage by transitioning Indy's film into sort of a brief playing of that theme. 
And then when they land in Peru, they use a a source cue. It's called Omaja Moxie, which is very bright and light, and obviously while we're in South America. But the Chariots of the Gods score had quite a few, obviously were in South America, Peru-type music, but it had a little more menace and and mystery to it. I I think there's a little miss for a musical miss, uh, hint, hint and a nod there. I'm kind of sorry Williams and Spielberg didn't do that. Anyway, this is where the score really starts to work for me as Indian Mutt find the uh, graveyard that uh, hides the crystal skull and the uh, conquistador Orellana's grave or cradle. And you got some very interesting scoring when they confront the guardians or gang or whatever that live in and protect these ruins. This was a nice moment in the film, a different kind of fighting for Indiana Jones, like even a little karate there, and it impresses Mutt. The music felt very much like it leaned on Jerry Goldsmith's style with some John Williams touches, like the woodwinds chirping in the background. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. It's very interesting scoring. I love the harp stings in it, too. Really effective effect for these very agile foes. And as Indy defeats them, it's, I think, one of the best Indy mutt bits in the whole movie. As Shia LaBeouf looks up, you're a a teacher? Part-time, says Indy. Nice little bit. Now, the rest of this sequence is classic Indian ruins or temple stuff, scoring very similar to, I would say, the Well of the Souls in Raiders of the Lost Ark. So when Mutt and Indy find the crystal skull underneath one of the dead conquistadors, this is where I found the theme for the crystal skull to be lacking in any weight. Because we're seeing the skull for the first time, I thought the theme should be stronger here. But because Indy is giving Mutt and us some important information about the history of the skull, it's probably best that the music stays out of the way.
also really interesting that Williams has a very creepy, quiet rendition of Spalko's theme on what I think are oboes playing very quietly underneath as Indian Mutt discussed the skull and its ramifications. Now, this obviously foreshadows the threat that still looms ahead for our two heroes, but perhaps does it imply there's a connection between Spalko and the skulls? And also, at the very end, the two themes kind of merge together. I wonder if Williams is trying to tell us something there. I'm not really sure. The only time I felt that the theme for the skull gets its due is in the middle of the film, after Indy has recovered the skull, and he's forced to stare into the eyes of the skull. Indy's strapped it to a chair, and the theme builds and builds as Indy becomes connected psychically to the skull. It's the violins that play the theme mysteriously here until the brass takes over when Indy starts to cry out. John Williams wrote three versions of music for this moment, probably at the request of Spielberg, who wanted a few options to use. And this is nothing out of the ordinary. Composers have to do this all the time, and they probably actually enjoy presenting different options. The other two music cues are pretty good, including this version with a tense ostinato that also builds as the scene progresses. Yeah, this sequence has a really nice horror film element to it as well, as Spalko narrates the Russian plans to use the uh, psychic ability of these skulls to kind of take over America. The plan is to turn you into us, and the best part, you won't even know what's happening. Uh, with the skull theme raising in intensity as she narrates this, and Indy being affected by it, it's a very, very creepy moment. 
Now this is going to lead to the film's big action sequence, the chase through the jungle, and it's one of my favorite parts of the film, both in action and in music. And here it is another example of how I think this score is, works in movements rather than bits. On the album, we only have a total of just under nine minutes of music from this sequence, the cue Jungle Chase and the cue Ants, whereas the sequence on film is just over 16 minutes and it's a tour de force. And this is where, and I agree as you've already mentioned, Jeff, Spalco's theme just really starts to sing and work well, as the score will clash Indy and Marion and Mutt's theme against her theme and the Russian theme, all with pulsing ostinatos thrown in along, believe it or not, with an homage to that evil Nazi monkey in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Though at least in this movie, the monkeys can help the good guys for a change. Uh, it, it, it's a great musical tour de force from the start, with Indian Marion arguing in the truck to Indy escaping, to the skull bouncing back and forth between hero and villain, to a sword fight on moving vehicles, to swinging through the jungle with monkeys, to a savage ant attack, and a great finale with Marion rescuing everyone. It's great fun to watch and to listen to. Yeah, there's just so much going on. And, you know, I have actually read while I was researching this that. Spielberg came up with a lot of these ideas while he was filming the chase sequence. He was out in, I think, in the jungles in Hawaii or wherever, or maybe on a soundstage and said, hey, let's do this, let's do this. And of course, it being Spielberg, everybody's going to say, sure, let's do it. And then later they put it all together and Spielberg still likes it. It was a lot, but uh, it's, it, it, you know, I could see why Spielberg wanted to just keep this so exciting. I think on the script, it was probably just two pages. You know, fight, 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 resolution, ants, fight, resolution. But I like the start of the chase sequence. The dialogue in the truck with Indy, Marion, and Mutt is one of the only good comedic dialogue moments in the film. Yeah, I agree. It's actually one of the tightest written moments. An example of what a tight screenplay would be. It's really too bad the rest of the script wasn't as tight as this. I think this film has all the elements in it to have been the best movie since Raiders. They just didn't polish the script. But this moment does shine. Good writing, uh, good direction, and great performances from Shia to Indy and uh, Marion to, of course, the Russian who speaks for everyone when he just goes, Oh, for love of God, shut the hell up! Then Indy does what he does best. He kicks the Russian guard while the guard is distracted, and Mutt also gets in some kicks. Pardon the pun here, John Williams also gets his kicks here too. Each kick on screen gets a musical hit, leading into a string and horn section while Indy unties his hands. That takes us into a different performance of the Indy theme than I think has ever been done in the series before. It's broken up into sections, played by woodwinds and horns.
Yes, you heard right. That was our old friend, the love theme from Raiders, when Indy tells Marion that all the women he loved just didn't stack up to her. Finally, a romantic moment from Indy. And that theme comes back several times in the chase sequence and in the remainder of the film. After that, the chase sequence just feels like a dud for the next eight minutes. Incidentally, the famous desert chase sequence in Raiders of the Lost Ark lasts eight minutes, and there is never a dull moment there. The chase sequence in Crystal Skull is just ludicrous, and even with all these things that Spielberg thought was really fun. Now here's why. Every time I see two vehicles going at high speed while the people in those vehicles are fighting, I always wonder why one of the drivers doesn't just stop. Just stop. When Arena is trying to knock the car carrying Indy and Marion off the cliff, I just kept yelling at Indy, stop the car, stop the car. I know it means little to no dramatic tension, but it just really gets on my nerves every time. Come on, Jeff. Logic in an indie movie? Um, We have to remember these films are homages to the adventure serials Lucas and Spielberg loved when they were kids. And in those, sense isn't on the list. They're just adventure and fun. I agree with you. The desert chase from Raiders is is, is great. But to take your point, why don't the Nazis just stop? Oh, yes, and the evil Nazis trap Indian Marion in the Wall of the Souls, a, 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 a room in a temple buried under tons of sand, and it's filling with venomous snakes, and to escape it, Indy takes one of the four supporting pi- pillars that's a statue, knocks it over through a wall of the temple. How come the whole thing just doesn't collapse and kill them? And, of course, he takes that, temp- that statue through the wall, the snakes are coming through, yet magically the snakes disappear. And then he and Marion see a glimmer of light, and they can move what has to be a two-ton stone themselves to escape, to quote a famous SNL bit with Seth and Amy. Really? Oh, yes, and to top it off, he rescues Marion by swimming to a U-boat, which, according to the map, takes a rather long cruise. If it submerges, he drowns. If it doesn't submerge, there are guards on deck. There's no way he could not be captured, yet he isn't. Really? And those are just uh, flaws in logic in Raiders, which is a movie I love. It was my dad that pointed these out to me and really pissed me off when I was younger. But he said, why are you getting pissed off? It was a fun movie. That was just stupid, that's all. But there are simple stupid lapses of logic in in Temple of Doom and in Last Crusade. I think sometimes, especially in an indie movie, you got to put the brain on idle and just let it slide and go on the ride. you just got to let it slide, Jeff, and go on the ride. I know, Brian. I know. And I know everyone who's listening to this right now wants to present the exact same argument. I had issues with some things in all three previous indie movies, like the plunge on the raft into the river at the beginning of Temple of Doom. But this chase sequence just really got to me, but... Maybe it's because the movie before wasn't captivating me, and of course there's that nuked fridge thing, and it just kept me from from suspending any belief. Well, you're not the only person who's had issues with bits and in indies movies, like the raft in Temple of Doom. But then again, if you have trouble with Temple of Doom, the film does begin with a beautiful blonde American woman singing a famous Cole Porter song in Cantonese, and the only words a Western audience can understand is anything goes which to my mind is lucas and spielberg sending a message to us it's an indie movie folks don't take it seriously anything goes put the brain on idle 
let it slide and go on the ride. But hey, <laughs> you're you're not the only person who uh, who who I, I know or have talked to that has similar complaints. And I I realize I may very well be in the minority here, but I guess on the bright side, if you hold my opinion, you get to have more fun watching more fun movies. Yes, I should just let it slide and enjoy the ride. But it, see, here's the thing. My left brain personality tries to find logic in situations too quickly sometimes, even in big Hollywood over-the-top blockbusters. But anyway, the music in the big chase sequence has some good moments, with John Williams employing his great skill at syncing the music with some of the action. So at least the music was able to divert my attention most of the time. Well, let's play some of that great music. And let's start with the music for the great sword fight between Mutt and Arena, starting again with that great rendition of her theme. And that interplay between Arena's theme and Mutt's theme does work seamlessly here, and I'm able to really appreciate it more away from the visuals, which doesn't always happen with me. It's usually the visuals really help sell the music, but I could really hear it apart from it, and I, I can appreciate Mutt's theme even more, believe it or not. So once that long sequence is over, my interest peaked again with this extended sequence involving thousands, maybe millions, of large ants ready to attack everyone. And the music brings to mind the music for the metal spiders in Minority Report. It's very atonal and unsettling. 
Those swirling violins and punctuated brass are the musical highlight of the scene, though there are those flute runs and xylophone hits as well. Here comes the skull theme as the skull creates a barrier. Nothing really special there until the ant music comes back as the ant danger continues to grow. Indy beats the Russian guy, of course. The Russian guy falls into the ants, and he's consumed.
Well, we all know that Russian guy had it coming. He was beating India through the whole movie. He got his just desserts. And, and yeah, you, you got to have creepy bugs in an indie movie. We had scorpions earlier on, and now we have these giant, quite mean, very creepy, shall we say, piranhas of the land ants. Now, once this excellent, well, at least for one of us here anyway, chase sequence ends, we enter the lost city of gold, Akator, and the score really starts to pulse with mystery, danger, and building excitement as Indy and his group find their way in, escape the native guardians, solve the mystery of the great temple, then they have to deal with the death trap, of course, and finally, in the inner sanctum sanctorium, discover the truth of the skull, the gold, and the legend of Akator. Now, this sequence is very chopped up on the original soundtrack album. Uh, the sequence makes up the cues Hidden Treasure and the City of Gold, Temple of Ruins and the Secret Revealed, and The Departure. In chronological order, they should go Temple of Ruins, City of Gold, Hidden Treasure, Secret Revealed, and The Departure. Uh, these cues make up 13 and a half minutes of a just over 20-minute musical sequence or movement in the film. The full sequence begins with a mysterious, again, very radar-esque sequence, as Indy and his group walk through the entrance to the city, reviewing the wall paintings that tell the story of the gods of Akator. The skull theme pulses quietly underneath on a harp, rising to a climax as Indy holds the crystal skull up to a painting of one of the gods of Akator, and lo and behold, they match. Not on the official score release is the sequence where the Yuga warriors, 
who protect and guard the city, emerge from their hiding places in the walls and attack our heroes. The piece begins quietly, then the strings sting in typical horror manner as the warriors literally burst out of the walls, follow and attack our heroes, and the music goes to a pulsing action cue as they surround the team, only to be saved when Oxley reveals the skull and they back away. After that, our heroes rather quickly climb the stairs to the main temple that is the center of the, of the lost city and face their first test. How do we get into this thing? Now, we find out in the film this is where Oxley failed the first time around. He couldn't figure out how to get in, that's why he returned the skull. But his damaged mind has thought it over and it has figured out the trick. And he convinces Indy and the group to take large stones that are on the ground and use them to knock carved faces in the central sort of axle of the temple. If you've seen the movie, it's on top of an average Mayan or, or Incan pyramid where you have a circular axle supporting a, a, a carved statue and there are four sort of stone spokes coming out. But as they bang the... Uh, carved faces on this central axle. They come loose and stand, sand rolls out, and the music really starts to pulsate as, as the sand falls out, those four ax uh, spokes start to slowly rise to the perpendicular, and it builds to a great climaxing chord as they finally reach the perpendicular, and of course the group falls into the temple. And this horn and string ostinato plays as the entry reveals itself might sound familiar to those who have been listening to recent episodes of The Baton.
And did you recognize that ostinato? It's lifted directly from War of the Worlds in the first alien attack scene. I bet Spielberg liked the music so much that he asked Williams to include it somewhere in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. You know, Jeff, I hate to admit it, I, I never noticed that before, and much to my chagrin, because now that you point it out, it is obvious you're exactly right. It's one of the many reasons why I enjoy chatting with you on the baton and listening to it as well. You, you, you learn and discover musical elements from Williams' scores that sometimes just go right by you. Uh, so thanks for that. But as far as reusing that uh, little ostinato, I guess if something works, why not use it again? Now, William does add to it with flourishes in the brass here and there to spice it up, building to that very nice climax. And interestingly enough, when I first played the album, this was the cue that stood out the most for me. Listeners should remember, I'm one of those guys that doesn't wait to see the movie. As soon as I can get a William score, I play it whether I've seen the movie or not. Now, once they're in the temple, there's a lovely bit that's not on the album release. It's a very nice, short little frantic scherzo that plays as the steps leading down into the temple suddenly start receding into the side walls, having our group frantically race down to avoid falling to their deaths on stone spires sticking out from the bottom, nicely adorned with long, dead, mummified conquistadors. Yes, I really enjoyed that moment. Now, that was an essential indie moment with these booby traps designed to kill. But you know Indy's going to outsmart them. Absolutely. It's a great little cue. I'm, I'm really kind of puzzled why Williams didn't find a way to include it on the album. Now, at the bottom, the group uh, will reach the treasure room where they discover something about the gods of Akator. And at the end of it is a huge door that leads, obviously, to a hidden chamber. How do they get in? while in the door is an indentation that looks like a body of one of the gods, with clearly the face of the skull at the top. So Indy takes the skull, pushes it into the uh, indentation. As the theme grows to a climax, and with cymbals crashing, it, it actually activates the mechanism, and the door starts to open. In a way I noted, very similar to how the door to the Chamber of Secrets opens in the second Harry Potter movie. Once inside, they find 13 crystal skeletons, one without its head. This is when Arena shows up again, and taking the skull, she connects a skull to its skeleton. And this is where the orchestra really comes to life and the secret revealed with heavy pulsing chords as the skeletons now complete animate. And through their 
psychic connection to Oxley, thank the group for the return of their friend, and offer them a great gift in return for that return. Now, I don't know why, but this offer really seems to spook our hero Indy, but Spalko seems very excited and insists to the skeleton she wants to know everything. Now, the music climaxes in that grand, somewhat tragic statement of Spalko's theme is, like Rennie Belloc before her, you gotta be careful what you wish for, all the knowledge is too much, and she combusts, and her ashes fly up through the wormhole. Then Indian Company have to escape the city as the gods depart, leading to another standout cue with a grand conclusion with the departure. I think the aliens used that portal to travel to another dimension, and the valley that they originally created is filled in by the water from that nearby river. Yes, into the space between spaces, as Oxley explains. So Williams makes a very odd choice for the music to cover the explanation of the aliens and their purpose on Earth. He gives us the theme he wrote for the knights who guarded the Holy Grail. I was confused about its use the first time I heard it. 
and I'm still confused about it now. Do you know why he went back to music from the Last Crusade there, Brian? Well, the themes not only for the Holy Grail, it also represented Indy's dad. And I think it's used here as an homage to Indy's dad, because as we found out in The Last Crusade, uh, Henry Jones Sr. valued knowledge above all. Uh, We didn't play it, but that theme is referred to earlier in the film in Indy's study, where he reflects on his dad. It also should be noted that Lucas and Spielberg intended for Sean Connery to reprise his role as Indy's dad. It's not supposed to be Oxley or John Hurt. It was supposed to be Sean Connery. But Sean Connery declined. He said he was enjoying his retirement too much. I think he may also not have liked the script that much. But I think this little musical thing is an homage to Sean Connery, to his character, and to the ideals that his character kind of stand for in the Indy franchise. For his Indiana has a nice little moment of realization as he says knowledge was their treasure regarding the aliens. Yeah, that makes a good point. And from here, we very quickly get our epilogue, the long-awaited wedding of Marion and Indy, followed by a typical end credit suite. And it's not given justice on the album. In the album, you just have a a replaying of the Raiders march from the very first uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark album. But in the film, all the new themes are represented and the Raiders theme closes it out. And this is on the album as well as the film with just a very nice fun flourish. I think it's John Williams just having some fun with a famous theme and kind of spoiling our expectations with just a fun little ending coda that, that just puts a smile on my face every time I hear it. Yeah, we're supposed to believe that possibly the torch is going to be passed on to Mutt for further adventures in the Indiana Jones world. But this fifth movie that is supposed to come out in 2022 will not feature Shia LaBeouf. Yeah, I think Shia would would agree that would be for the best. Um, We need to remember he got into quite a bit of trouble that negatively affected his career due to some rather negative comments he made about the film and his experience on it at its premiere in Cannes. And when you look back at it now, it's clear he he really knew he didn't fit well in the character. His character wasn't well-developed. But you don't want to say that about a Lucas and Spielberg film. Uh, the tragic thing for Shy is it's one thing is clear. Everyone had a blast making this movie except him, unfortunately. And it is unfortunate because he's really, really quite a good actor. 
But talking about that fifth Indiana Jones movie, Harrison Ford is signed on for another run as Indiana Jones, which would be his fifth time wearing the fedora. Steven Spielberg was actually going to direct it, but he decided to give someone else a chance to give the Indy saga as a fresh start. Now, with Spielberg on as director, it would have been a no-brainer that John Williams was going to write the music. But now that James Mangold, who did the Logan movie, did very well with it, is on as director. Now, I don't know if John Williams is going to be keen on staying on the project now with a new director, but even though Spielberg is staying on as a producer. Now, as of September 2020, there has been no news regarding John Williams' continued involvement with the franchise, and right now, it remains the only film that has John Williams' name attached to it in any way. Yeah, when I first heard about it, I, I didn't mind the idea. I like Harrison Ford, love him as he plays Indy, but I gotta be honest with the uh, the COVID pandemic wreaking havoc across the world and being in the entertainment industry, I can tell you it's really reaping, wreaking havoc in the entertainment industry. At this point, I seriously doubt that we'll see a fifth entry anytime. So the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences didn't seem to think this score was one of the five best of 2008, making this the first Indiana Jones score to not get an Oscar nomination. But Grammy voters still stuck with John Williams and were happy to see him release another soundtrack CD. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull received two Grammy nominations, one for the entire soundtrack and another for the track The Adventures of Mutt, which closes out the music in the end credits. Now, though this soundtrack lost out to the score for The Dark Knight, and yeah, there's probably some merit to that, Williams picked up the award for Best Instrumental Composition for The Adventures of Mutt. It was his ninth win in this category, which was already a record. All the other nominees that year were jazz-based compositions, so it's likely that Williams' work stood out for voters. And as excited as we were about John Williams returning to film scoring, we were going to have to temper our excitement. We'd have to wait three more years for something else, because he's going to take another break from film scoring while he waited for Steven Spielberg's next feature film to be completed, and that would be The Adventures of Tintin. But Williams did contribute one quick piece of music in February 2009 for the PBS show Great Performances. That show had been on the air since 1976 in its current iteration, showcasing some of the best live theater and concert performances. John Williams had been a part of the show several times over the years, mostly through his work with the Boston Pops. So when he was commissioned to write a new theme for the show's opening in 2009, he definitely could not resist. So within this 75-second theme, each part of the orchestra gets to perform the main melody of the piece, which gives it different meanings in the piano, the horns, and the trumpets.
Yeah, I, I enjoy the opportunity to listen to any new John Williams themes, whether it was for Sunday Night Football. Uh, some people will think an odd choice for Williams, but hey, we know he's the NBC guy. And, of course, this wonderful theme for PBS. And that theme for great performances was honored with an Emmy for Best Main Title Music, giving John Williams three Emmys over a 40-year span. Now, almost one year later, John Williams was in the East Room of the White House receiving the National Medal of Arts from President Barack Obama, which is the nation's highest honor for artistic excellence. Now, just as a quick side note, ever since this award started being handed out in the 1980s, there are only two other film composers who have received this award, Philip Glass and Quincy Jones. I would argue, though, that those two had their awards come mostly for their contributions to music done away from the film industry. So, unlike the period between 2005 and 2008, at least John Williams stayed in the news once a year during this three-year break, and then roared back with a bang, giving us two film scores in 2011. The first one is The Adventures of Tintin, and that will be the subject of the next episode of The Baton. I look forward to your look at uh, that score in the next episode. And perhaps that's the fifth Indiana Jones score from Williams everyone's hoping for. And I'll let you tackle that thought in your next episode. Yeah, I never thought of it that way. But from what I remember of the film and score, it could be seen as an Indiana Jones wannabe. I'll have to kind of listen for that. Well, look forward to that part of the discussion in your next installment. Anyway, for our look at... Uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I have just had an absolute blast chatting with you, Jeff. And it was fun to both agree and disagree together. And that's also part of the fun of sharing our love of the music of John Williams. Yes, I agree on that one. Yeah, I have to be honest here. I don't want to get too emotional. I've been really honored, honored to have been lucky enough to have been a part of your show for, for four episodes now. I, I, I thank you. Thank you so much for just allowing me to chat with you about the four scores that we've talked about together. I've, I, I've really enjoyed it. A, a, a huge, huge thanks for letting me be a part of it. You're kind of hitting the final lap now as you get into the late 2000s. Uh, final lap on your journey through William's catalog. Uh, and I just want to give a big thank you. Uh, anyone who's been a guest uh, on your show knows it's a lot of work to put one of these together. We just don't wing it. We, we talk back and forth quite a bit, have to watch the movie. It's, it's a lot of work you put in. And I just really, really want to thank you for taking the time and the commitment to, to put that show together. It's, it's fun to listen to. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to your next episodes and very sadly that it's upcoming co completion on the journey. It's going to be sad not to have a weekly episode to listen to, but I guess on the bright side, they're up on the web and we'll be able to retake this journey with you anytime we want in the future. Oh, thank you, Brian. And you've been a great provider and you've talked about some, some big scores from John Williams, like JFK. And you've talked about some of those little ones like the Iger sanction. And I would say that JFK is kind of the big one, and Amistad's kind of a medium one, and then we get back to a big one with Crystal Skull. So thank you for your contributions. So as always, I want to thank everyone for spending time with us today. And please don't be shy about sending me your thoughts about Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of Crystal Skull. I, Brian did a good job of trying to convince me that the score was good, and he did a very good job. And perhaps all of you can continue to do the same, and maybe I will say it's at least on par with The Last Crusade. 
So I'm looking forward to reading all those emails. And please send them to me at jeffswim at AOL.com. And thanks, everybody, again for joining me. Until next time, the baton is down.